This episode contains spoilers for The Winds of Winter. Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, our special Patreon episode one, Barristan 1 and Barristan 2 from The Winds of Winter. I am one of your hosts. My name is Chloe. You can find me on Twitter and on Tumblr as Lies and Arbor. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, also known as Gloss Table Girl, and you can find me on the Maester Monthly podcast and on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. So, as Chloe said, this is indeed a sneak peek, a taster of what our Patreon episodes are going to be like. As you all know, we're doing this POV reread, and any chapters that are from The Winds of Winter are going to be Patreon episodes, but we're giving you a taste of that this week for freezies. But we'll also be having other episodes that aren't just the point of view chapters that'll be around subject matters, and those will be available to our patrons. And one example of that would be an episode focused around Rob Stark, doing a character analysis of him, talking about you know what the story would have been like in, in different circumstances, as well as, of course, the effect that he has on the entire storyline and other characters. And since our Patreon has also opened already, there are patrons leaving comments, and we really love this idea and are totally down to do it from one of our patrons, Mercedine One. Mercedine says, Love everything you suggested, especially excited about the T-Wow chapters. I'd also be interested in hearing your take on Jock and Hagar. What's his deal? Why was he in the Black Cells? What's he doing in Old Town? Is he still carrying out a mission for the Faceless Men, or has he gone rogue? Another topic I'd love is an analysis of Bravos, history, culture, institutions, etc. And doing an analysis of Bravos sounds totally up our alley, and we would be so excited to do that. So thank you for the suggestion. Yeah, I'm so excited to approach a lot of these character analysis analyses. Am I? I'm totally too into a song of ice and fire. I'm like analyses, the dragon rider. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I, I think that a Rob point of view kind of character analysis and seeing things from how he would have seen it and from how others see him is going to be really great for us. In case you didn't listen last week or missed out, we soft launched our Patreon, and what that means is it is set to creation only until September first. So. You will not pay until September 1st when we switch it over to monthly. Mm -hmm. If you join one of our $10 tiers or above, you will get a free Bellwoss Deserve Better sticker shipped out after we get launched. And we'll go over the tiers with you right now. Since this is a special Patreon episode, you have to listen to our shtick for a hot second. But I promise you we will be getting right into Barristan 1 in the Winds of Winter <laughs> And spoiler alert, this is going to have a lot of Winds of Winter content. We will talk about other chapters during this. Even I haven't read yet. And with that, we will tell you about our Patreon tiers. They are named after horses because I love a good tribute to my wife, Eliana. It goes also back to how this all started. You know, we bonded over horses. Yeah. I forced you to bond with me over horses when you invited me. Eliana was like, it was just like in Weeds with uh, Celia Hodes and Nancy Matlin when Celia is just like, be my motherfucking friend. Mm -hmm. You with horses. And it was really good. It was a great episode of Drunken Egg. Yeah. So it goes back to the beginning. 
Uh, so yeah, they're named after horses, and the first one is Honor, a horse. Which is a horse. <laughs> for, uh, only one dollar, and you get access to our show notes, which are hilarious. Yeah, they're very hilarious, but also, like, keep in mind, we'll leave some other fun stuff for you. It's not just that. We like to treat you guys, so you'll get some fun blog posts, some fun, some fun discourse. I don't know. Like, it's not just going to be show notes. Like, if you give us anything, we're very, we appreciate you a lot, so. There's a lot of random commentary that I just leave for Chloe, <laughs> and now all of you get it too. And our next tier after our $1 tier is The Stranger for $5 uh, after one of the best horses in the whole entire series. Mm -hmm. And that tier will get you all of these special episodes, like the one you're about to hear today, and our show notes. And then after that, you have Thunder, another great horse, a war horse. Uh, That buys you show notes, early access. So instead of having to wait until the end of the week, on Friday, you can get through Thursday a little better. And you, of course, also get the special episodes and the special episodes notes. Yeah, and Thunder looks great. Thunder is fun for $10. Definitely a war horse. After Thunder, for $10 comes Chestnut for $20. Uh, the very, they're all good. They're all good horses. Yeah, they're all good horses. <laughs> Chestnut gets you show notes, early access on Thursday, special episodes and their notes, a digital download of an original piece of art by Eliana, and a sneak peek at our next point of view. So, of course, the art's likely going to be the portraits that are done for each of the POVs, but of course we're not putting out a new POV every month, so those will come out as the new POVs do. Yeah, as new POVs, as leisure, as creativity hits... Uh, You'll definitely get a few digital downloads of some really cool original artwork done by Aliana. It's really beautiful. If you saw our Ned piece, if you've been following us since the beginning, you might remember that. That was by Aliana, and she's extremely talented, and I'm so lucky to have her, and she's so great. Debatable. Um, Next, we have Sweetfoot, $30 tier of Patreon, which also a great horse, deserved better, hopefully found a good forever home, deserved that apple. Um... And you get show notes, early access, even earlier. Now it's on Wednesday. You get the special episodes and the special episode notes, a digital download of my art, and and a physical print. We're going to figure that out, as well as sneak peeks at the next two POVs. Upgrade. Indeed. You're going to be like some Maggie the Frog level stuff. <laughs> and the top tier that we have is, of course, the beloved, the ballers, Zorses. Zorses. Yeah, this is, like, the top tier. I Everybody was like, it should be Danny's Silver Mare, and I'm like, no, it uh, should be No, Zorses. that's basic. Yeah, right? Yeah, basic. It should be Zorses. And for $40 a month, the highest tier we have, show notes, early access on Wednesday, a digital download of artwork, one physical print, an annual physical gift, which will be probably in the wintertime in fourth quarter. Uh, that's subject to change just in case and depending, but you will get a physical gift from us. Pre-show monthly audio, which will be probably 20 to 30 minutes of Eliana and me just bullshitting once a month before the show. Uh, it's fun. We do that. It's like XOXO Gossip Girl. It's mm-hmm. sassy and talking shit about characters. 
and you will get a sneak peek at the next three POVs that we plan to cover. This means, and I'm not saying poor Quentin spoiling us on not a cast, you will get an actual update. We will have a document just for you to look at that will tell you what the next POV is and even some fun stuff about it. Those aren't the only fun things that we have planned. These are open to everyone. This this fun thing that is happening. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about it, but we are doing a giveaway on Twitter for our U.S. listeners only. I'm sorry at this exact moment it has to stay not international just for ease of shipping of the item. But we are doing a giveaway. Uh, Fire and Suds, which is an awesome, really cool shop. They have an Etsy store, uh, which is just Fire and Suds, one word. Check it out. I will put a link in the description. They sent us for review these bath bombs, which we mentioned last week. They're actually really cool. Like I, I saw them and I was like, oh, those are kind of neat. But basically, they're these fizzy bath things that you could just throw in your bath, give yourself a luxurious, you know, soak in some essential oils and some fizzy bath water, whatever. And they were so cool. She sent me uh, a cauldron with bright green granules like packed together in it, which was Cersei's Pot of Wildfire. I got to try that one out this weekend. And it was very like smoky and earthy smelling, but like really good. It's vetiver and mirror. And it was it was like a wildfire explosion in the bathtub. It was really cool. It was just all green and sizzly. So that was really nice. I I took like some pictures and some video of it. Uh, so that was cool. Just like a little boomerang, you know, the back and forth thing. She also sent me Drogon's egg, which was cool. It smelled like roses and cloves. And they also come with really cool little character prints. She sent me a Daenerys and a Cersei print. They're really cute. We are going to be giving away two bath bombs by Fire and Suds on Twitter. So make sure to head over to our Twitter at Girls Gone Cannon to check that out. Wait, so you've already used both of these bath bobs. They're really cool. The The Drogon's egg one was so cool. It's like red and black swirled. And like you put it in, it's a little shimmery. And I don't know, it made me really feel like I gave birth to a dragon, which also was a little yeah. bath, but it was cool. You know? I mean, is it like that? Yeah, that first scene, you know, where Danny goes into the very hot bath and she's like, I'm blood of the dragon. Again. That's what I felt like. Okay. I mean, who doesn't? She was a little scared, but if you ignore the part where she was scared because she's about to be married off, it's the dream. Um, oh my god. And, so again, this giveaway is only for our US listeners. Sorry. And all you have to do is follow Girls Gone Canon, retweet the tweet uh, for the giveaway. It's going to be pinned on our profile for two weeks. Just go, go share it, and you know, hopefully you are the winner of some really fun bath bombs. I, yeah they're so cool they're, they're really so cool they're also like super cute like if you just go on the site check it out she has really cool stuff she has like a sansa stark like bath like uh maybe it's a body butter or like a, no it's a salt scrub or something it's really mm. i don't know she had some really cute themed stuff which is like plus like lemon cake scented things are my thing she has a whipped soap and whipped yeah. body butter. that's so cool yeah um. yeah and to finish up our housekeeping Next week, we will be starting a new point of view after this Barristan wins a winner episode. If you aren't one of our patrons or if you aren't very clever or have <laughs> subtle hints we've dropped, because we've not been very subtle. Uh, people have guessed it on Twitter. We're not subtle. We're the worst. We drop really bad puns about it. Remember, it was going to be fire, you guys. You'll probably not know, though, that we're going to start favorite sad son, Quentin. 
we will be having the ever fabulous poor Quentin on from not a cast. He also has a great blog on tumblr.com and he's written some great stuff for Deadspin before. I really encourage you to check that out. If you have some time between next week's episode, I implore you to check out his Quentin series men's lives have meaning because it's some really great stuff and it plays in well with what we're going to lead into from this episode. And of course, if you're already familiar with poor Quentin, this is, this is his, you know, namesake series. This is his thing. This is his thing, man. This, this is the series that started it all off for him. So yeah. check that out. Not to, that's not fair because he did do his other series. He did oh, right, right, right. Tyrion, but no, it is. Oh yeah, no, you're right. The Tyrion was work first. Yeah, it was really yeah. good. Yeah, this is his bread and butter. I wanted to read before we get into Barristan one. There's this really interesting so spake Martin that I feel really sets the field, and it's just a quote from it. But the Myrony is not related to everyone reaching Danny. There's a series of events that have to occur in Marine, things that are significant. She has various problems to deal with at the start, dealing with slavers, threats of war, the son of the harpy, and so on. At the same time, there's all these characters trying to get to her. So the problem was to figure out who should reach her and in what order and what events should happen by the time they've reached her. I kept coming up with different answers and I kept having to rewrite different versions and then not being satisfied with the dynamics until I found something that was satisfactory. I thought that solution worked well, but it was not my first choice. George R. R. Martin from 2011. Uh, I will put the link in the description from the Citadel from the So Spake Martins. So what he's saying, the subtext is that Missande was the first choice because Missande is still my first choice. Mine too. I do yeah. love her. I do. Yeah. But as you're all going to see in these Barrison chapters, and you've already seen them in dance, but like, these ones are great. These wins chapters are really great, and I think that the choice that George made works very well. It might not have been his first choice, but I think thematically it really worked out for him. Yeah. So, to start it all off, um, what we missed in the Winds of Winter sample chapters, you know, there are things that happen, of course, at the end of Dance, but you would know what happens there because you've read these books before. Whereas I, in fact, I'm going to tell you some summaries of things that have happened in the Winds of Winter, and I have not read these before. But because we don't have that chapter order and the book's not out yet, <coughs> it, unfortunately, <coughs> as of this time in 2018. So Ow. we've... <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. This is fine. This We're fine. fine. We're fine. It's fine. We've arranged these sample chapters that have come out from the Winds of Winter in or in the order that we think they might affect Barrison's plot. They might end up being like backwards from how we were presenting them here. They might end up being like a different order. We don't know. But there might even be like Barrison and Tyrion and Victorian and Barrison. We we don't know, but what we've done is tried to artfully arrange them around each other with maybe some other chapters thrown in the mix in a way that we think makes sense with the situation in Mirin. In Tyrion 1, in the Winds of Winter, Tyrion and Brown Ben are back at playing a game. Sivas. They wait for Barristan to break the siege of Marine, and they banter about the trebuchets. Brown Ben talks on how the dragons are wild cards since they could attack either side during battle. 
They both assume Daenerys will return Dragonback and even think about rescuing her hostages and changing sides to learn the Yunkish war plans. Tyrion decides any skepticism when Daenerys comes home will be refuted by his defeat of her most dangerous enemy, Highwood Lannister. Tyrion is about to defeat Brown Ben at Savas when Jorah bursts in with news. Black sails in the bay, ironborn ships, all flying dragon banners. Wild cards. Wild cards. <sighs> and that brings us to Barristan 1. No chance, no choice. Barristan must go to war with unblooded boys and disorganized armies against the odds of a thousand to one. He calls on everything that the old bull would have said and grits his teeth. Bodies are being trebucheted over the walls in Marine. This is literally the Blackwater of Marine, except with flesh. Dead flesh. Corpses crash on the ground, and worms and maggots and blood are smeared all over the bricks and the walls. Yunkish trebuchets, six of them, aren't catapulting farther than the inside edges of the city. Barristan rides into the market square and he's thinking on how Daenerys, during Daenerys' sack of the city, they broke through the gate with a battering ram called Joso's Cock, which was made from a mast from a ship, if you'll recall. Hours later, uh, the city fell and hundreds of dead littered the ground. Barristan, during this battle, or preparing for this battle, is wearing the armor that Daenerys gave him, white and gold, and riding through the city on her silver this is, of course, the first time we've gotten to have a little, like, fashion power hour in the chapters. Barristan mm-hmm. isn't constantly thinking of what people are wearing so much. But this is a great sign of Barristan's prowess as a military leader. Not only is he choosing smartly in an animal that is comfortable with her dragons, if they appear, he's inspiring her people that are fighting for her, whether or not she's there with her animal and with his white and gold armor. Barristan is oddly cognizant of dairy. Barristan is oddly cognizant of Daenerys' dragons, last chapter and this chapter, and how they may behave in the battle to come, especially compared to Brown Ben Plum in Tyrion's chapter. Hmm. Yeah, I agree on all those points. Like, you get, you gotta give Barristan mad props for just, like, acknowledging... A, he's acknowledging that it might be presumptuous of him to ride this horse, but I think that it is a really smart choice and it's the first of many signs throughout these two chapters of Barristan's impressive like strategic mind when it comes to military matters. I do think it's interesting he's been very presumptuous in all of his plans for Daenerys's people. I would like to even count how many times we've actually said that in the last few episodes mm-hmm. about him of him just deciding to do things that he knows Daenerys wouldn't want him to do. Although, like, in this scenario, like we said, no chance, no choice. He has to. Yeah, he's pulling every card that he has here. Every wild card. Oh, wild cards. Uh, he rides with three of his quote-unquote knights. Tumkolo, who's carrying the Targaryen standard, the red on black. And then we have Larock the Lash, who, if you'll remember, is the one who uses a whip, very fresh, and he's carrying the Kingsguard standard, which sounds like a really great design, to be honest. Seven silver swords encircling a golden crown, golden crown, very cool. And the Red Lamb, who is given a great silver banded warhorn for the field. 
What I love about this part of the chapter is that it directly mirrors the Victorian chapter in The Wind's Winter that we're going to talk about in a bit. Uh, in his chapter, there are three people. If you haven't read it, I really suggest it. There's the boy, the brute, the bastard's bastard, and the hellhorn, which is, of course, as we all kind of know, Dragonbinder. Victorian's boys are doomed to their certain fate just from blowing this horn. Are Barristan's boys going to be doomed to their fate from blowing this board too? This horn. Oh, yes. Yeah. So those other boys. The, oh, yeah. And, I mean, there are other boys that in his camp. You know, some of them are in that Great Pyramid. And they're going to die, is my uh, expert opinion. Those boys in the pyramid are probably going to die. Yeah. Probably. They would fight another day, or not at all. Not every squire. Uh, maybe I should say this as a quote. And a quote from the chapter... They would fight another day or not at all. Not every squire was meant to be a knight. It was the hour of the wolf. The longest, darkest hour of the night. For many of the men who had assembled in the market square, it would be the last night of their lives. I just love this. This happens suddenly a lot, I feel, in The Winds of Winter. This hour of the wolf and this term, the hour of the wolf. Did they use that in Marine? Are there wolves in Marine? These are questions. That I have. Yeah, it's a very foreign phrase to them, I think. I think it's very, like, just Barrison. Like, they would have, like, the hour of the brazen beast. Yeah. Or, like, the harpy. The hour of the harpy. Yeah. We'll be talking about the hour of the harpy later. when We talk about the canon plot of what happens to Barrison Selmy. <laughs> Indeed. We flesh out the armies, uh, like the Unsullied, who have 5,000 armed, each armed with three spears, a short sword, and a shield. And because there are so many of them, together with this great line that I love that George R. R. Martin puts in, they stood as still as if they had been carved of stone. What I end up seeing is I get this like mental image of Emperor Qin Shi Huangdi's like, terracotta soldiers, I'm sure... You've heard of them. If you get a chance to see an exhibit of them, you definitely mm -hmm. should. But, like, that's what I'm seeing, you know, right now when I'm imagining this entire army just ready. We also have other parts, other people, such as the Stormcrows, Dario's Sellsword Company. And their company's banner has a dozen ragged black streamers on a tall staff topped by a carved wooden crow. Also reminds me of a Another wins spoiler that <laughs> we fucking like CSI Miami to get anything out of, but about the crow's foot, crow's food umber. Yes. Next we have the Dothraki, and there are twenty of them, twenty each. Yes. Damn, where did they all go? Oh, they left. Most of the Colossar, though, are in search of Daenerys. So what we have left here are some of the old. Dothraki, and most are green and they're young, and they're looking for the first bell in their hair. Maybe they'll get it. Maybe they'll just not have any hair or head. Oh. Wow. Eliana. I got dark. I, I didn't mean to. I don't know what happened. I just got dark. I got sad. I hate when you black out like this. I know. And we, of course, have the pit fighters, the famed pit fighters. Among them, he sees Spotted Cat, Fearless Eyefolk, Sanera She Snake. Cameron of the Count, the Brindled Butcher, Togash, Marigo, Orlos the Catamite, and Gogor the Giant. They are all wearing light armor, and Barristan actually wonders if it's due to Kraz of his killing of Kraz with no armor. 
I do think it is. Oh yeah, me too. S- smart. They learn fast. And of course, we have the brazen beasts, who are pacing the gatehouse battlements so that the Unsullied can fight. They're guarding the city and are also serving as the last defense to the city. So if it falls, it's up to them to hold it against the Yunkish. Which is kind of a very harrowing line, in my opinion. When I read that, I just thought, ooh, man, watch out for those sly bitches, you know? like Yeah. After, after reading all these chapters and summaries over again... I definitely think Barrison might even be shut out of the city or could be kept out at the end along with the Iron Lord mm-hmm. sons and armies. I, I mean, if the Brazen Beasts and the higher, you know, nobles of them and the Shavepates, if they're in the city and they have Barristan's people that are left, and I just, I worry that they won't win this war in the way they want to win it. Yeah, it's the hammer and the anvil, but just not them. Yeah, exactly. We'll get back to that. So on the other side of camp, the main camp is west between Slavers Bay and Noreen. Two trebuchets are at the main camp. There's one at the river, one opposite the main gates. Two dozen wise masters and their slave shoulders are manning the trebuchets. And between them are the Company of the Cat, the Telosi Sliners, and somewhere out there are 300 Illyrian crossbowmen. Okay. Of course, I love the world building that George R. Martin does, but I don't actually love all of the details and descriptions of the battles sometimes because sometimes I kind of find them boring and we're just like, oh, and this is here and this is there. But I do, of course, appreciate how much detail and thought that George has put into it. Like, you can really see the scene in Mirene. And so, because of that, I'm very impressed. And there are all these little details in there where they talk about the different gates that enter the city and it feels reminiscent to me again of King's Landing and all the different gates there. Yeah, battle chapters are not really my favorite either. Mm-hmm. I kind of usually sit there and I'm like, give me some dresses and some damn politics, you know, but I'm into that court life. But at the same time, I don't mind them when they lead up to something good. And I feel like this really built up around itself, especially with the surrounding chapters that we're going to summarize more of. I feel like it kind of really built up to something, which it makes sense this back after you read this chapter and get this background, you need it for Barristan 2 and for Victarion 1 and Tyrion 2 to kind of understand things going on. For sure. Yeah. I don't know. I just like chapters where people are sad more. Or maybe yeah. if they're like being like a little happy, like when John and Sam become friends. I think that's a really cute chapter. That's I just prefer those over battles. I like battles are okay. That's literally, like, all the chapters or one of the chapters, except for, like, the battles. Yeah, except for the battles. <laughs> Barrison thinks that there are too many foes, and that Mirene is built to actually have the advantage of holding against the siege, but yet he must fight all the same. And again, I feel like that's just saying that the real battle's actually going to be in the city after this, because... As we'll get to, it feels a little easy. Yeah. The real battles also in our hearts. <laughs> the White Bull would have called it folly. He would have warned Barristan against trusting swords too. This is what it has come to, my queen, Sir Barristan thought. Our fates hinge upon a sword's greed. Cameron, Gogor, the spotted cat for the pit fighters. You know our plan of attack. 
The white knight said, when the captains, your city, your people, our lives, the tattered prince holds us all in his blood-stained hands. A, I really like the name Gogor. I think it's a fun name. Gives me, like, Hodor vibes. Um, And also, I want to talk about this line of our fates hinge upon a sellsword's greed, because I think that it, this is definitely true of Garrison's fate, but I don't think it's the sellsword company that he thinks it rests on. It's not the Stormcrows. It's the Second Sons. We see at the end of Dance that they've switched sides or ha- or might have agreed to switch sides with Tyrion uh, and defected Daenerys' forces. And in all likelihood, they're going to intersect with Barristan and be a force that can tip the scales in Meereen or in Slaver's Bay. So, and of course, in the next chapter, Barristan's going to notice that the Second Sons don't seem to be on the battlefield as well as hints about it in these Tyrion chapters. Yeah, absolutely. When the reveal happens, it's pretty solid. The plague has basically ruined any chances of them just withstanding the siege, is what Barristan notices. Mm-hmm. The way they describe that is just so also interesting, has other ramifications for the story. Like, he might have held Meereen for years against the Yunkai, but he could not hold it for even a moon's turn with the pale mare galloping through its streets. So we get a really great depiction of how devastating the impact is that disease can have on a population which i think is key to note in that marine is kind of pretending how disease is going to come into play again in westeros with a grayscale outbreak on the horizon oh john khan oh john khan and every they're gonna pin it on shireen or something it's gonna be so sad leave leave my baby alone Barristan gives a pre-war attack plan speech to his captains. A hush fell across the market square as the old knight and his banner bearers rode toward the gatehouse. Selmy could hear the murmur of countless voices, the sound of horses blowing, wickering, and scraping iron-shod hooves over crumbling brick, the faint clatter of sword and shield. All of it seemed muffled and far away. It was not a silence, just a quiet, the indrawn breath that comes before the shout. Torches smoked and crackled, filling the darkness with shifting orange light. Thousands turned as one to watch as the old knight wheeled his horse around in the shadow of the great iron-banded gates. Barris and Selmy could feel their eyes upon him. The captains and commanders advanced to meet him. Jokin and the widower for the storm crows, ringmail clinking under faded cloaks, Grey Worm, Sure Spear, and Dog Killer for the Unsullied in spiked bronze caps and quilted armor. Romo for the Dothraki, Kamaran, Gogor, and the Spotted Cat for the Pit Fighters. We also get more detail on the plan of attack. It's a very multi-pronged attack. So they're going to hit hit the Yunkai with their horses first when the gate opens. And they're going to ride hard and fast at the Yunkai, Yunkish slave soldiers. And when legions form, they're going to sweep around them. But don't try to use their spears. Or don't try their spears. Take them from behind or in the flank. Each commander also is given a main objective that they have to accomplish. So the widower has to take down the trebuchet Harridan. I love that these trebuchets are named. It's very cute. Joaquin has to feather the nobles and burn their tents. Romo has to kill many men 
many, many men, but do not take any slaves because A, we are not about that. We're not about that anymore. So not what we do, Romo. If we don't do that. And then Kat, Gogor, and Cameron must frighten the Yunkai by screaming and shouting and distracting them, slaughtering them, but spare the slaves because A, we don't take any slaves and we're going to try and free the slaves. So spare them, but cut down their masters, the noblemen and the officers, and fall back if you are surrounded. But Gogor says he will not fall back, not ever. Beerson thinks then Gogor will die soon. I kind of oh. think it's adorable that Gogor says that. That's just me. Gogor deserved better. <laughs> I think Gogor <laughs> They, The pit fighters did deserve better, okay? Ariston tells them to listen for the sound of his horn so that Grey Worm can advance in line and roll up to the slavers and their soldiers. He plans to win if the Ascari march to meet them. And basically, by knowing this much detail of the plan of attack, what I surmise is that means all these plans are going to fail. Because, like, you know, you probably know all this, but it's like an unspoken rule of storytelling um, that if you hear a character's plans, that means it's probably not going to go through. And structurally, this makes complete sense as to why stories do that. It's to keep up that suspense so that your audience doesn't know for sure where the story is going and keep them engaged. Otherwise, they're going to get bored if they know exactly what's going to happen. And you've likely seen this trope play out over and over again in many different kinds of stories. It happens in, of course, A Song of Ice and Fire. When you hear the plan, something's going to go awry. For example, in Ned's chapters, we hear about his plan to take control of King's Landing together with Littlefinger, and that went really great. Uh, that went yeah, really no. well, and by that I mean it went to shit. And of course, the inverse of this is also true. For example, when stories cut away from the plan being shared, they're like, oh, here's the plan, and then it's like, cut, and then you're like, oh, what's gonna happen? Right? That tends to mean that the plan's probably going to succeed and you're going to watch it all play out great. And you can see this happen a lot in Danny's storyline in A Storm of Swords, where she withholds her plans from some of her council and, of course, the readers in Astapor when she takes the Unsullied. But sometimes she only withholds those plans from the readers, like right before she takes Marine, and we only find out how everything went down after the fact. So anyways, the point is, Bearson's plan, it's going to go to shit. Yeah, absolutely. There's a big but then that comes after that, but yeah. totally going to shit. Ariston commands that if retreat is heard, fall back. The walls of Marine will sustain them, and the brazen beasts will be packed within to protect. Ha ha ha, will they? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the brazen beasts will protect them. They're going we'll to, fine. for sure. That's why they're called the brazen beasts. Dude, I'm telling you, they're all gonna die. We're all gonna die. Widower's horse sidled to his left, and if your horn falls silent, Sir Knight, if you and these green boys of yours are cut down, it was a fair question. Sir Barristan meant to be the first through the Yunkish lines. He might well be the first to die. It often worked that way. If I fall, command is yours. After you, Jokin. Then, Grey Worm. Should all of us be killed, the day is lost, he might have added, but they all knew that, surely, and none of them would want to hear it said aloud. Never speak of defeat before a battle, Lord Commander Hightower had told him once, when the world was young, for the gods may be listening. 
Widower asks him what happens if they find Dario, and Barrison tells them to give him a sword and follow him. And if he should die heroically in battle, so much the better, he thinks. Barristan. Of, co- of course he thinks that. He's like, oh no, Dario oh was a hero and he died defending your queenship, Daenerys. Don't you still love him and yearn for him? That's sad. Now you can't have him, so he's dead. Yeah, then he's like, it was honorable, but now he's out of the way. Which like, Thank fucking God, is what he's saying. I know. He's like he's hoping. Like, He's like, I fucking hated that dude. Yeah. But I, I want to take a moment to just admire George's language and writing again. Uh, with Lord Commander Hightower had told him once when the world was young. I just think that's such an amazing way to phrase that idea. Because of course the world wasn't actually fucking young. But I think that's such a, it captures so well how it feels sometimes when you're looking back at an earlier time, those rose-colored glasses of nostalgia and youth, and your world, like, is just starting. I just like that. Oh, yeah. Barristan tells the commanders to go to their men and say whatever prayers to whatever gods they worship because dawn will be on us soon. Oh, my God. So dramatic. (laughs) It it is dramatic. They're on the eve of war. (laughs) Jokin of the Stormcrows calls it a red dawn. And Barrison thinks this is even, he's even more dramatic. A dragon dawn. Of course he's dramatic, dude. He's been living in a story for fucking 79 million years. Yeah. For 8 million rings. Oh, so many goddamn rings. He had done his own praying earlier as his squires helped him don his armor. His gods were far across the sea in Westeros, but if Septons told it true, the seven watched over their children wherever they might wander. Sir Barrison had said a prayer to the crone, beseeching her to grant him a little of her wisdom so that he might lead his men to victory. To his old friend, the warrior, he prayed for strength. He asked the mother for her mercy, should he fall. The father, he entreated to watch over his lads, these half-trained squires who were the closest things to sons that he would ever know. Finally, he had bowed his head to the stranger. You come for all men in the end. He had prayed, but if it please you, spare me and mine today and gather up the spirits of our foes instead. Uh, most of his men, though, show that they actually fear the Pale Mare more than they fear the oncoming attack. It's interesting that they're more afraid of the disease. Barrison, though, gives them an inspiring speech to help raise their spirits. Yes, he gives them a war speech. Some men will die in battle. More survive. East or west in every inn and wine sink, you will find gray beards endlessly refighting the wars of their youth. They survive their battles, so may you. This you can be certain of. The foe you see before you is just another man, and like as not, he is as frightened as you. Hate him if you must, love him if you can, but lift your sword and bring it down, then ride on. Above else, keep moving. We are too few to win the battle. We ride to make chaos, to buy the unsullied time enough to make their spear wall. We... Sir? Larocque pointed with the Kingsguard banner, even as a wordless murmur went up from a thousand pairs of lips. Far across the city where the shadowed steps of Meereen's great pyramid shouldered 800 feet into a starless sky, a fire had awoken where once the harpies stood. A yellow spark at the apex of the pyramid, it glittered and was gone. 
A yellow spark at the apex of the pyramid, it glimmered and was gone again, and for half a heartbeat, Sir Barristan was afraid the wind had blown it out. Then it returned, brighter, fiercer, the flames swirling, now yellow, now red, now orange, reaching up, clawing at the dark. Away to the east, dawn was breaking behind the hills. Another thousand voices were exclaiming now. Another thousand men were looking, pointing, donning their helms, reaching for their swords and axes. Sir Barristan heard the rattle of chains. That was the portcullis coming up. Next would come the groan of the great gate's huge iron hinges. Next would come the groan of the gate's huge iron hinges. It was time. The red lamb handed him his winged helm. Barristan Selmy slipped it down over his head, fastened it to his gorget, pulled up his shield, slipped his arm inside the straps. The air tasted strangely sweet. There was nothing like the prospect of death to make a man feel alive. May the warrior protect us all, he told his lads. Sound the attack. So good. What a good speech. What an epic chapter in general. It's an epic speech. We didn't even read that whole thing. It's a long-ass speech. It is a speech. so long. It is a proper speech. It's so good. If you haven't read this chapter, it's all over the internet. Please go read it. Do yourself a favor. It, like, it brings all of Barrison's plot from dance together and really gives it just some foundation, finally. Yeah. Uh, it's my first time reading it, and it has been a joy. So, I'll, there's also some like language in here that, again, I'm going to point out that might be wordplay, might not be. Could be reading too much into it. People do that. People read too much into it, and I could be doing it. What? But who would do that? Who would do such a thing? In my podcast? Some people read too much into it and do a podcast. Like, that's silly. Who would do that? Who would ever do such a thing? Like, so silly. This language of, like, a yellow spark, blah, blah, the apex of the pyramid, and Sir Bearson was afraid the wind had blown it out. I don't know if this is, like, foreshadowing or, like, wordplay about the wind blown sellsword company. And then, of course, um, then it returned brighter, fiercer, the flames swirling, now yellow, now red, now orange, reaching up, calling out the dark. And like, I don't know, this is like Daenerys returning harder, better, faster, stronger, maybe, fierier, deadlier, worse, bad morally, and choosing violence over peace, whatever. But it'll be so good story-wise. I don't know. Reading too much in- I'm definitely reading too much into it. I also like how uh, his helm is described as being winged. And it kind of reminds me of the old bull's helm with the antlers and, uh, of course, the went helm from the Tower of Joy with the wings. It kind of reminds me of his brothers of old and, like, he's returning to that Kingsguard station of, you know, this is what, after everything I've heard of Gerald Hightower, you know, him just embodying his brothers, Oswald Went and Gerald Hightower. That makes perfect sense to me because I actually was wondering, like, why is he wearing a winged helm? Where did that style choice come from? He's drawing the strength from his brothers, from, you know, the men that he looked up to. Yeah. He might not have had the time, necessarily, I guess, to form. He had some time, but strong relationship to them, but. He had, like, 90 years to form a relationship with Kingsguard Eliana. Um... Do you think Danny's just gonna, like, walk in the door like she did in, like, season six or whatever? Hi, home to break the siege. Oh, yeah, I for did sure. it. 
Yeah. Was that season six? Yeah, that was season six, I think. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that was that was bad. Something like that. God, that was so bad. It was pretty bad. It and was then... like just not well directed or acted. Like literally like the Tyrion, Missande, Grey Worm, they're all God. sitting there awkwardly and like Daenerys just like stomps in the room and she's like, I'm home, bitch. She comes in and then she's like, I saved it all and it's great. I've got dragons, bitch. It's gonna be bad, you know? Like, it's gonna be like, you think you wanted this, but is this actually what you wanted? Which is what George tends to do. Yeah, and like, any piece that Barristan was trying to salvage is gonna be gone no matter what it feels like. Like, there was no saving this. Like, he was fighting just like Quentin, a battle that he wasn't gonna win. Mm -hmm. She's gonna swoop in, and it's gonna be fire and blood, and turns out fire and blood isn't actually what people want. I want it because I like the murky morality behind it, but... Cheers. Cheers to that. Barrison dies in season five of the show to the Sons of the Harpy. It's canon. Like, I don't even know why we're discussing what Barrison's fate is. Like, the show's canon now. I mean, but to be fair, you're not wrong. I mean... Barrison got to have, like, a whole... Like, this chapter proves he gets a face front like huge role in the war like he gets to like lead the battle of marine that's a huge thing but i still think he's gonna die of course he's gonna die of course he's gonna die i'm just gonna keep hammering that dead horse because we're a horse podcast now that he goes he has to make it back to westeros otherwise why did they set all that stuff up oh my god anyways okay just discourse discourse then then we have our lightning round which yeah in Victarion one, the Iron Man sailed to Marine and Victarion to steal a bride. Mikoro brings Victarion Dragonbinder, the horn, and he commands three boys to blow it once each on his command, hoping to use it to win the Sea Stone Chair, the Iron Throne, and then the world. Fucking idiot. He literally thinks if one guy each blows it, phrasing, they won't die and it will work. Christ Almighty, this guy, you guys. Anyways, Victorian allows each of them to touch the horn, then leave, and he keeps it with him for safekeeping. He asks Mikoro to give him a goddamn vision, and Mikoro says the magic words, I see dragons. Which, like, he said last time. This isn't a new vision, Mikoro. Tyrion 2. Camped out with the Second Sons, Tyrion awaits battle orders. Rhaegal and Viserion fly overhead in the sound of the crashing ironborn fleet, and slavers' ships surround them. By the chapter's end, the second sons are sworn to defend the wicked sister and the young Kai, but Tyrion and Jorah are still attempting to persuade them to defect one more time. The second sons receive another message, told to sweep the Unsullied from the rear and defend the Harpy's daughter. As the messenger notices Tyrion is an escaped slave... Jorah kills the messenger, who then falls upon the Savas table, knocking the white dragon to the floor, which Tyrion then picks up. The second sons were always queensmen, and joining the Yunkai was a ploy. Who would have thought? <laughs> Wild cards. Okay. So, Barristan 2 is not really a fully released chapter. It's a very in-depth summary, but only summaries exist for it, and it is... Full-on battle time. 
It is interesting, though, the summary. There's a lot for it being a summary. So, the battle has begun in Barrison 2. And for the first time in centuries, the bloody stage in Viren, it's an outright war. We're going to go into some of this historical context as to why this is so interesting. Because after the fall of the Valyrian Freehold, of course, the century of blood or a bloody century, depending on which historian, I guess, you want, is what followed. The power vacuum left by the dissolution of the Freehold gave rise to these power struggles between what is now the Free Cities, a little further west, and allowed the Dothraki hordes to grow in size and in strength. You may recognize among the events during the Century of Blood, the 3000 of Kohor, as a standout example of these struggles. And the old empire of Gis reformed itself into the slaver cities that occupy Slaver's Bay. Yet interestingly, the Giscari people did not come out of the Century of Blood unscathed. So currently we have the three slaver cities of Astapor, Yunkai, and Marine that took up the mantle of slavery that the Valyrian Freehold pushed to its territories. But there were once several other cities that fell to the Dothraki hordes, there were the Hazdan Mo, a city currently in ruins. It was renamed Ves Diaf, meaning the city of the skull by the Dothraki. Uh, there's a city that's Giskari, whose name is actually unknown. It's in ruins as well. It was renamed the Krizaj Haz, which actually means in Dothraki, the Sharp Mountains. The Dothraki name refers to the pyramids that used to be standing in the city. There's also a smaller town, it was Giskari in origin, and its original name is unknown, but it's also currently in ruins. It was renamed Ves Efe, meaning City of Shackles by Dothraki. And lastly, there was a Giskari town whose original name is also unknown and in ruins, named Ves Mejha, meaning City of Horrors by the Dothraki. So they were uh, pretty original, really. Yeah, but it's interesting that there could have been more cities than the ones that we have now, but they fell to those Dothraki. So in that context, you know, after these centuries of quiet between these three cities, I'm not going to say peace because slavery in and of itself is violence. The battle that we see between these cities is actually quite remarkable and shows why many of these quote-unquote warriors, as we're going to see later in these chapters, seem very inexperienced with real combat, something that Barrison has pointed out in his previous chapters when he's comparing himself to the pit fighters like Cross, And it explains Slaver's Bay's reliance on sellsword companies for martial power because of this peace they'd never really needed to have their own warriors. And they also always just bought slaves. Right. So. Stomach in ropes, Barristan outpaces the cavalry and the boys on Danny's silver. And she is much faster than the rest of the horses. Because, like, she's, as explained when we first see this horse, is the fucking pride of the Kalasar. Eliana, our horse expert, is here to tell you that Yeah, she's the best horse. It's it's basically like flying, but on a horse. But also you basic. <laughs> the Yunkish armies are not prepared for this attack at all. Barristan closes in on Harridan, the trebuchet, hearing the sellswords around him taking up battle cries of Dario and Stormcrows fly. He thinks to himself that he will never doubt their valor again. 
You can see how much of Beerson's worldview is shaped by being a knight through all of these battles. He judges a person's honor by how they act on the battlefield. And he's very touched by the loyalty that the sellswords are showing towards Dario. In fact, perhaps maybe a sellsword company's not that unlike a white-cloaked brotherhood Barristan. Just thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's parallels, but if those parallels are saying that he's gonna turn cloak, I think they're wrong. Um, oh, that's not what- actually, that's not what I was saying. Good, about, just making sure. I was just saying that, like, being in a sellsword company and going through all those things together can- forge a bond quite like brotherhood like with the knight's watch i mean and either way even as a king's guard you're still a sellsword your sword is sold to the mm. king and queen i mean you are a sellsword you're not better than them barristan just saying just because they take their money from dirtier sources your dirty sources are just the same queen cersei robert think about before them Ares. you know mm-hmm. it's just as dirty the money's just as dirty watch where it goes I don't want your slutty money. Yeah, Barristan, we don't want your slutty money. <laughs> I just love that movie. Me too. A Stormcrow Squire dies as the air is filled with arrows and a bolt strikes Barry's shield. Three horn blasts go off and the pit fighters emerge from the gates. There are 200, but they sound like 2,000. I keep getting these flashbacks to other battles and violent moments throughout the books. Like, this reminds me of three blasts for others. And also, of course, you know, having a smaller number, but it feels like they're more, even though they're not, like the battle for the wall. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I can totally see it, like, against the wildlings and... Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and especially his look on things, we get Barristan seeing things through his point of view. Like, one woman stands out to him completely. She was wearing nothing but greaves, sandals, and a chainmail shirt, and a python? And a python? Yeah, like, V. Britney Spears. He's, like, really shocked. He thinks this has to be this chick's last day alive, and he watches her titties just, like, bounce around. I'm also just curious as to, like, what... I I just don't understand how one fights with a python. Like, I am just not... This whole culture is weird. We're going to see something weirder in a few minutes that we'll talk about. But this culture is just weird. And Eliana helped provide this context that, you know, they haven't really fought in a very long time. They don't really... They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Also, I just want to say that this outfit, though, is giving Barristan with his winged helmet and nice armor a run for his money. Yeah, not dude. Not money, because I guess not sell swords, but whatever. Great fashion statement. Yeah, arm your, your lads like this, for sure. The pit fighters are shouting, fuck, Hisdar, and even some call out Daenerys. And I think this does serve as a line for us to notice. Hisdar and his pit fighters may not be all bad. They may even just be political casualties in the inner workings of Marine. Which is kind of how it was in the show. And interestingly, Barrison has just felt so out of place in Marine, and of course alienated among all the different associate people and cultures that he's encountered. So the way he feels like in the battlefield and these moments, it looks like the first time he feels he actually belongs and feels connected to those people. So you can see that the way that Barrison views the world, like war is this great equalizer between people for him. Yeah, war is his language, like the muddled words that he knows in Giskari that he claims he can't understand. That's one thing 
but this is dance to him. This is poetry. This is rhythm. You know, like when he dips, they dip, you dip. Like when I move, you move. Just like that. <laughs> Indeed. Exactly. Thanks. Thank you. Right. So sadly, Eliana's favorite, Larocque, is hit in the chest, but the squires hold the banners high and they shake off that hit. I just think there's a lot of feelings here. I wonder if we will get them actually in this Barrison chapter or maybe later just because Barrison has talked about these boys being like his sons. And also like Larocque was so cool. He was like, oh, I use a whip. And Barrison was like, you can't fight with a whip. And Larocque had like all these cool ways of doing things, but... But he died in the end. He died too early, but Barrison was like, yeah, he's like, I'm learning new things from him. I don't know. Feels. Grandpa, why? Grandpa. The Rock. Oh my god. <laughs> the Rock. Okay. A 6,000 strong legion of Giscari are guarding the trebuchet. So they're like, it's like six ranks deep, and the first rank is kneeling with spears pointed out and up. And the second rank is holding their spears at waist height and standing. And then you have a third rank that's holding the spears out at their shoulders. It's like a fucking porcupine. And the last three ranks have small throwing spears and they're ready to sub in as the comrades in the first three ranks fall. So let's once more praise George for a second because, yes, this isn't our favorite chapter of all. We don't even know what the chapter I know, looks like. But it's a battle chapter, so it's not our favorite chapter. But I can see this in my mind. As one soldier falls, another replaces him and falls right in line, very mechanically and methodically. This is all meant to build suspense of reading this battle, of course. As we continue through the chapter, we get this almost out-of-body feeling because we're watching Bearston figure out what the fuck is actually happening on the field and why they aren't attacking exactly like he thought they would. Mm-hmm. And Bearson remembers that a maester's chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So he immediately then scans the youngish lord's companies to find the weakest among his enemies. And what he finds as the weakest are Little Pigeon and his herons, so Bearson targets them. Well, like, again, going back to how they haven't had to fight in a bajillion years, who the fuck puts stilts on? The fight in a war. Like, what is with the Yunkish, dude? They're a bit frivolous and ridiculous. Like, some of their shit, I'm just like, what? You're, you have stilts on. You're wearing stilts to a war. To a war! I'm just here for the name Lil Pigeon. Rapper name? Like, uh, yeah, I think that's a great rapper name. Lil About Pigeon. to drop his new hot album, The Pale Mare. Oh, hey. Or, like... I don't know. Started from the bottom. Now we're now we're up here on stilts, and now we're back down up on hair. the ground because now started from uh, the bottom. Now we're hearing. St- or should it be like we started from the top, and now we're here? I don't know. Seriously, because like it doesn't. Ma- they can't be an actual battle. The the enemy is confused. Like two minutes, yeah. and then they're like, "Ha ha, tripped you, you bird bitch!" Like what? These fucking burbs. <laughs> Maybe yeah, burbs. Maybe. Uh, Maybe it makes a little more sense in the actual chapter when it's written. Like, maybe there's an actual There has to be something to it, it like, but it sounds yeah, silly. I don't get it. It sounds very, like, fantastical. Like, elephants in the army is one thing for Golden Company. Yeah. That's different. 
But like, this is a little too fantastical to me. It's like the circus on stilts. And it's almost yeah. like, it's kind of crazy to even like picture, like close your eyes for a second and picture that on stilts and these crazy ass like armored people running around. Then like you have all the slaves that are tied up like with their masters so they can't run. Like it's just fucked up looking in your head. It's a very like, I can see why the show couldn't do it because it was too much and it was weird. I also just, I just still don't understand. The stilts? Is there like, is there a strategic advantage to fighting on stilts? I'm Googling it right now. Yeah, go to a Ren fair, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Like, oh, maybe this is a thing? This, okay. The Stilt Walkers of Namur in Belgium. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe, um, let me click through. Since 1411, um, hold on. I'm gonna stilt fighting. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to edit this, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, Let's make it cohesive-ish. Like, red. What the fuck? Oh my god. Since 1411, okay, so stilt walkers have been fighting for more than 600 years. They joust, uh, this is a thing in Belgium, and they confront one another, and these, to quote this website, their spectacular fights have pleased emperors and kings. Charles V, Louis XIV, Peter the Great from Russia, Napoleon, all of them attended a stilt walkers fight eat given by the stilt walkers of Namur. Oh. Namur? I, I don't speak this. Um, and it happens on the third Sunday of September, so it's coming up. And so maybe this is where George got the idea. And it makes sense now that I think about it, because if the pit fighters were, of course, born out of um, forcing people to fight for entertainment, I'm not saying that this, these stilt fighters in Namur, Namur were forced to fight, but like, if it's for entertainment, this is they were like, this is what we have, okay? Hmm. Also, throw that link in there. But yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I never knew that. Which it makes sense. It had to come from somewhere. There had to be inspiration for this because it's so ridiculous and dumb that I'm like, who thought of this? George, you couldn't have thought of this. Come on. So the Belgians. Yeah, the Belgians. The Belgians did it. I mean, they came up. It's hit or miss, you know. They got waffles. Those are great. Barristan uses the dawn to his advantage, and he turns from the trebuchet to the herons at the last minute, knowing that the herons will be blinded. And I find this very impressive. It's a really interesting tactic. Such interesting tactic. Mm -hmm. He then, while they're blinded, cuts off a heron's head, and Danny Silver knocks one heron into another, and they're scattering, they're falling, and they're running away, led by Little Pigeon. I'm going to calmly explain to you, which I will edit out, that I meant scattering, but I wrote scatting. Um, (laughs) The pigeon trips over his bird armor and gets caught by the red lamb. Pigeon begs for mercy. He says he will garner a large ransom. And the red lamb says, I came for blood, not gold, and knocks him and knocks his head in with a mace, splattering blood all over Danny's horse. Sick. Uh there's also just some great imagery here. I, I like that idea of the blood staining, the shining silver, and that white knight. It's sort of that idea of that loss of purity as we're 
entering the winds of winter. Would you say, like, loss of purity, splatter of blood on white, a white knight? Oh, God. You know what I'm into. Uh, the virg- his virginity? No, real Sansan what? hours. Oh! Uh, yeah. Anyways, so... No, I totally agree. I also want to point out what I said in our last episode that we did, if you missed it, with the award-winning author of The Cautioner's Tale, Jeff Hartline, which this entire scene is a fable. The little pigeon is begging for mercy and the big red lamb denies him of it. Really interesting. I just love that whole back and forth is just very like, no, said the little pigeon. Oh, no. Yeah. It's also reminiscent of the tourney at Harrenhal and the way that the story is explained by the reeds. Yes. They're just using symbols to tell the story. So it comes off like a fake. And I mean, Ashara Dane's daughter is such a good storyteller. So. Indeed. <laughs> the Unsullied March in Barristan notes the Yunkai have missed their opportunity to start a counterattack. He watches slave legions die, mostly the ones that are tied together, and he wonders where the second sons have gone. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> Who knows? Where are they? No one knows. <laughs> oh no. The Unsullied are organized outside the gates, and they're ready to fall in line. Tumco looks at the bay, and he says, why are there so many ships? Why are there? Harrison thinks it must be the Valentine fleets to his dismay, and his heart is rapidly sinking. But suddenly, he realizes those ships are crashing into the enemy. Tumko looks, since Barrison's old and he can't use his eyeballs well, and he identifies the banners. Squids. Big squids, like in the Basilisk Isles, where sometimes they drag whole ships down. Barrison responds, where I'm from, we call them krakens. Squibs. 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 <laughs> and we're having... You know, our favorite our favorite squid next week on the couch. Yes, our fave squid. Aww. It's another piece where they kind of drop that hint of the Kraken. We've heard it a few times before, such as in Rumors by Varys. I think there was another time, too. But by building it up, it sets the stage, I think, for a potential actual Kraken appearance to show up when shit gets real in the winds of winter. Especially if you've read the damp hair chapter, the Kraken, oh which... We might have to have so a certain guest back for that one, huh? You mean George? We're going to have George? We're going to have George? Gonna no, have, no, bring you know George R. R. Martin? Yeah. Yeah, we will. Biggest Patreon tier. $700. Get George R. R. Martin. <laughs> yes. If enough of you pay it, we promise it could happen maybe. It could happen maybe. This is totally fine. Oh my god. You're not wasting your money. I promise. <laughs> Absolutely not. Barristan realizes the Greyjoys have arrived, and he wonders if Balin had joined with Joffrey or the Starks, but then he remembers Balin has died. He thinks maybe it's Theon, the ward of the Starks, until he sees the Iron Men are coming ashore and fighting off the Yunkish. They are on our side! The Sellswords did not come to meet his charge because they were already preoccupied with the Ironborn. It's like Baylor Breakspear and Prince Maker, the Hammer and the Anvil. We have them! We have them! And that is how the chapter ends. And it's just like, oh, Barristan. Even on the battlefield, being like, it's Baylor Breakspear and Prince Maker of the Hammer and the Anvil. Like, he's living his life still through the songs of his heroes. I love 
that it's like straight out of Hamilton in uh what's the name of this fucking song? Yorktown in the Battle of Yorktown in Hamilton the musical. There is this moment and they literally like win this big battle at Yorktown, the battle at Yorktown, uh, if you've heard of it ever in history. But in Hamilton the musical, you know, they start singing that like all the people at the bars were all just like sitting there during the war singing. The world turned upside down because it was like this big. They didn't realize they were going to win. But Hercules Mulligan was like spying on the government and like got in there and he fucked shit up. And that's just how it was. Like Barristan standing there like he's like, we're all going to die. This is it, boys. Like we're all going to die, men. Like go die with dignity. We're going to go out there, but there's no way we're going to win. We're barely going to hold the city. I hope we make it. The Ironborn fleet clashing with the slavers and then all of a sudden the second sons are going to come in in a bit like damn son like boom 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 big stuff it's a big build up with a great 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 release like that release was so rewarding it's not entirely unlikely that george might be like hearkening to that battle yeah because history he's a he's into history yeah he's a slut oh. for history also does does Barristan not know that joffrey's died he might not know. They might not know that Joffrey's dead. Yeah. Jorah got cut off and sent away. Oh, yeah. He's been devoid of info for a very long time. The person who's going to tell them all this. So then, okay, we're going to go a little off topic for a second, but the person who's going to tell them this. Tyrion. It's going to be Tyrion. And first of all, Tyrion has to even convince them then that he killed Joffrey. It's not just like, oh, yeah, I did this for you. Like, oh, duh, didn't you know that was me? Like, he's be like, yeah, Joffrey's dead. And it's going to be his sardonic, sarcastic ass saying it, too. He's going to be like, oh, didn't you know I killed him? Yeah, I mean, he didn't. No. Which is hilarious, but. Yeah, right? Oh, my God. That's going to be, that's something. I didn't realize. Yeah, that's where they're going to learn that. I didn't realize that either. Holy shit. Yeah, the blurs lying together. Oh my god, what a beautiful journey. Aw, I'm so, it's the friends you made along the way. Yeah, everyone join, thank you for being on this journey with us. We still actually have more things to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, from like our new patrons to like just everyone that listens every week. You guys are so great. Thank you for your support. This has been so fun. Yeah, it's been, it has been fun. Now it's over forever. Everyone says great stuff. Yeah, that's it. We're wrapping up. We're wrapping it up forever. Just kidding. We're not. Yeah. So, yeah. We've got so much to go. We're literally so now we can't stop for four years. So we're also not even done with this episode. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Because, I mean, like, I got thoughts, you know, like, this is my first time reading these chapters. No, you got a lot. Yeah. So tell me some thoughts, girl. I mean, like, okay. So Barristan won. There's just so much great imagery, even though the battle's, like, not my faves, but, like, it gives you the feeling, like, right from the get-go that Marine feels like hell. Like, this is hell. Everything's going to shit. And, like, it's also interesting to just remember that these chapters were actually supposed to go in dance. Like, these would have felt like such a climax where things, you know, are getting hairy in Marine before and now it's like all falling apart and it's erupting and like between the impending battle and like the disease ravaging the city everything's everything's going terribly i also just like really understand now what people mean like i've 
seen people talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse in reference to the Mirani situation before. Can't cite any of them off the top of my head and also don't really remember exactly what they said. But I do kind of want to take a moment to talk about it. There are a lot of different interpretations of what each of the four horsemen is and what it represents. But one that seems to fit really well in this situation is the idea from Ezekiel, as opposed to the one from the Book of Revelations, where there are four disastrous acts. Sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. We obviously have pestilence in the form of disease, the pale mare, and sword from, well, obviously, war. Famine has also been a struggle for Marine this whole time since the masters burned the fields, and the wild beasts could, of course, be the loose dragons, but at the same time, it's fun to think of the wordplay here and a lot of the callbacks in Barrison's chapters to the brazen beasts and all of the different animals on their masks. Much like how the Westerosi, as mentioned in the previous cast, seem to embrace the personas of their sigils. Regarding keeping the Battle of Fire in A Dance with Dragons, is what Eliana was saying, the split, I think Bearson 1 would have been an interesting cliffhanger to end on, and the suspense of war hanging overhead, but I don't think it would have worked well to not end his arc on Bearson 2 had it been kept in the book. Barristan 1 definitely lends to this hellscape that we've been exploring, and we're going to go through it in the future with Quentin. Quentin's entrance in the rising inferno of Marine is interesting, and Barristan 1 has the feeling of that peak after he's died. The mare has left the streets ghastly, bodies and maggots and gross stuff are just smacking everywhere you look, and Quentin dies before he even really sees the worst of it. As we've mentioned previously in the past, Barristan's nightmares and hellscapes were hearing the king rape Rayla hearing people being abused and tortured, killing at command, and he could always mentally go away inside from these things, mentally pretend it wasn't happening. Now, he's in kind of like, he's in the harshest ring of hells. He can't ignore this. He covers up with chivalry. He rides Danny's silver, but he prays under his breath desperately. The odds are not good for this battle, which is why the Ironborn arrival at the end is so big. The resolution from this consonance of failure and fighting is a huge whooping feeling. I just couldn't see the two chapters split across two books after reading them together. No, the chapters absolutely have to go together because there has to be like kind of a resolution-ish to this battle, like how it was in Storm. You know, we are presented yeah. with the battle and then we get... The end of what happens at the Battle of the Wall, same with the Blackwater, we kind of get like that resolution to the end of the Battle of the Blackwater. But I just don't see how he could have fit this battle in Marine and a resolution to it in just these two chapters. There obviously needed to be other chapters. And that kind of gives you some insight into the process for why they were just like, we cannot wait for you to finish writing those chapters and whatever other chapters you would go between all of them to A, continue fleshing out that battle and B, stagger it so that it's not just everything happening in Essos. And so they were like, we just have to publish this, which I understand why. And plus it would have just been like an enormous book, like physically very difficult, I think, to bind into one book. Yeah, especially commercially speaking. Mm -hmm. I think... This chapter is more than a testament as to how and why A Dance of Dragons and Feast were capped the way they did, and I think I'm glad overall the way the chapters moved to the Winds of Winter. Yeah, for sure. And along with that, regardless of whether this is at the end of Dance or in Winds, you can see how this in this chapter the tone starts to shift in the story. Like, yeah, there are dark moments in the other books, but if when you take into account the way Marine feels 
like a this hellish revelation style apocalyptic setting setting where there's like the pale mare literally dragons also armies and it's just crazy and when you combine that with like things like the tone of the forsaken and that's beyond one chapter and then like this uneasiness that comes from the mercy chapter and like i don't know maybe all the other fucking chapters that i actually haven't read yet because i'm saving myself the elaine chapter is like cute so not including that one Um, but you just really start to get the feeling of that brutality of winter even with the fires raging in Mirin, it's more about that brutality. And I just think that these chapters go perfectly well in a book called The Winds of Winter. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I It, it makes me pumped. Like, reading these, like, really makes me pumped. Because I feel like that's the other thing is all these sample chapters we do have that we've read, that's the beginning of The Winds of Winter, homie. Mm-hmm. Like... It goes up from there. The end of that book is going to be fucking madness. So when people are like, why hasn't George released the book? Like, I can save you all this. That's why. Like, it has to get better from these two chapters, dude. Like, Mm -hmm. it is going to get better from these two chapters. But he has a journey to get there. And it's a lot to write. It's a lot of strings to build up to, especially when, like, he has to set up for A Dream of Spring. That means all of this has to go off by the end of this book. And then by a dream of spring, like this is his timeline. He has to make all this happen. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. It there's a lot of strings that he needs to wrap up, and Not a lot of. I mean, ends. these chapters racked our world. So keep going, George. Yeah. We love you, buddy. Yeah, thanks, come thanks, on Dad. our come on our podcast. Yeah, seven hundred a podcast, seven hundred dollars a month. Yep, yep. New Patreon tier. You pay me hey, seven hundred a month. We give you all the seven hundred, George. Come on. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, thank you everyone for again coming on this journey with us. And if you wanna stay on it, of course, listen to our podcast. Continue to do so. Subscribe to us on Podbean. That's where everything gets released. But you can also choose any of those other platforms that you might like. For example, you can catch us on iTunes, on Google Play, on Acast, on Stitcher. And if you love interacting with us, or if you would like to start, you can always tweet at us at girlsgonecanon on Twitter. You could also send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you'd like to sign up for our Patreon, you can find that at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. I have been Chloe, one of your co-hosts, who you can find at liesandarbor.tumblr.com or at liesandarbor on Twitter. I've been Eliana, another one of your hosts, who you can find on the Maester Monthly podcast and the uh, and on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. You're literally the only other co-host. You know that, right? Yeah, I'm the other. I'm the other girl. The other the girl. girl. I'm the <laughs> first girl. Oh my god, that's all we are. Thanks, you guys. 